With the new iPhone SE for less than 100 bucks at Metro, you rule. It's the most affordable iPhone on the number one brand in prepaid. So whether you're studying online or FaceTiming. Hey, Mom. Hi, dear. The iPhone SE has all you need. Switch to Metro and get the iPhone SE for $99.99 after rebate redemption and six months of service with AutoPay. Metro by T-Mobile. Rule your day. Limit one per account slash household. Requires port and ID validation. Not valid for numbers currently on the T-Mobile network or active on Metro in past 90 days. Restrictions apply. See store for details. Behind every company, there's a time-tested engine keeping it moving. After earning his master's in accounting degree online from Grand Canyon University, Isaac's helping drive his client's business forward by identifying efficiencies and building business models. He's become a core team member, keeping clients on budget and ensuring their success. What do you think accounting careers look like? GCU offers over 175 high-quality online programs like this one. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. You are about to enter the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast on shockwaveskullsessions.com. And now your host, Bob Nalbandian. Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to another episode of the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast. Uh, we hope each and every one of you and your families are safe and sound as we all continue to push forward through these dog days of quarantine. And like most, uh, we're just trying to make the best of this crazy situation and find as much enjoyment as possible during it and what better way to do so than to have some crack with a couple of Irish headbangers and I'm not talking about the street drug I'm talking about some fun and enjoyable conversations uh, and we did so uh, on this episode with a couple of metal enthusiasts that hail from the land of saints and scholars as we bring to you episode number 55 and on, on this episode we've got a return guest Richie Waddell also known as Iris Ritchie from the Focus on Metal podcast, who was also on a, uh, a Skull Sessions episode number 11. Uh, that was from last spring. And uh, if you haven't had a, ch- a chance to check that out yet, please do so. I highly suggest it. Uh, it also features Mark Striegel uh, from Talking Metal. That's a great episode on the uh, current state of metal podcasting. And uh, yeah, you can go to our webpage, Sessions. Dot com to listen to episode 11 as well as all other episodes on the podcast and alongside richie this week we've got another irish native and metal junkie mr tom brennan and uh, without realizing it many of you may have actually seen or now you could see in the future uh tom on tv either on or before uh new year's eve every year as he is the uh, spokesperson and master artisan for Waterford Crystals, and you don't have to be Irish to uh, know Waterford Crystals, as they are the manufacturers who make the actual crystals that you see on the infamous Times Square New Year's Eve crystal ball each and every year in New York City. And uh, Tom is a major metalhead, and along with Richie, they both uh, share with us their experiences about being, you know, metal fanatics. Growing up in Ireland during the 80s and, you know, the lengths that these guys had to go to, to you know, in order to buy music and, and see hard rock and metal shows during their youth is pretty impressive. And uh, so this is really, a, a, personally, I loved uh, doing this episode along with Bob and uh, I'm certain you guys will uh, really dig this one as well. Uh, so let's get to it. Episode number 55, Metal and Me Lucky Charms featuring Irish Richie Waddell from the Focus on Metal podcast and Tom Brennan. We got a very, I always say we got a very special podcast, but this is a very special podcast. And this podcast 
was supposed to be done a couple weeks ago, and it was supposed to come out around St. Patrick's Day, and for good reason. We've got the Irish team. We got Irish <laughs> Richie. Richie Waddell from Focus on Metal, one of my favorite podcasts, a great podcast. What's going on, Richie? Hey, Bob. How you doing? Good. Good to have you back. I know we had you on a previous Shockwave Skull Sessions with, I believe, Mark Striggle, correct? Yeah, that was right. We talked about uh, podcasting. It was very good. Enjoyed it. That's right. And our second Irish man, and I use that term loosely. Hey, hey. (laughs) (laughs) My good buddy. And whiskey drinking man, Tom Brennan. What's up, Tom? Hey, hey, Bob. How Matt Richie? How's everybody going tonight? Doing great. That is, uh, of course, Matt to Matt Harnett, the uh, Shockwave Skull Sessions co-host on this episode. Uh, what's going on, Matt? What's going on, Bob? How you doing? Man? Obviously, I'm I'm very looking for much looking forward to this one, man. I know you kind of know Richie from the Focus on Metal. Sure. I know uh, Tom is kind of new to you. I actually met Tom uh, what a few weeks ago when you were yeah, in, just uh, two weeks ago, Bob. Yeah, San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. we had a nice uh, whiskey drinking uh, session. Yeah, you were, you were drinking more whiskey, whiskey, if I can remember. Is that correct? Is that is that the way it worked? <laughs> <I think? laughs> it was good whiskey, whatever it was. <laughs> red breast, red breast Irish whiskey. Red that breast. Was nice. that, and it was weird. It was out of Bloomingdale's. They had a grand opening. Check that Bloomingdale's. For those that don't know, it's kind of a high end, kind of like a Nordstrom's, I guess, or maybe even yeah. more mm-hmm. end. It's like a real trendy, snooty kind of elitist kind of shopping place, and they have a Irish yeah. whiskey. Uh, tasting. Uh, I, I was surprised more people didn't get out of control. I mean, usually you have an Irish whiskey tasting. People, you know, there's going to be some chairs being thrown around and, and whatnot. Nah, no, we weren't at a Slayer gig. We were at a, you know, Yeah, but wasn't that Tom Araya that was pouring the whiskey there? Yeah, <laughs> that's what I said to you. The guy, the ambassador for Redbreast, a guy called Dom, is the image of Tom Araya. And I said to you, do you think he looks like him? And he's a big rocker and metalhead too, so we had a good conversation later that night if you can remember. But yeah, he's a, he's a, he's, he's a spit of Tom for sure. Slayer could go yeah. back out and just put Tom up front and Nobody know the difference, you know? That yeah, we kept man. in touch, and he was actually going to come out to the uh, screening. Of course, that mm-hmm. got canceled because sure. Don's an Oakland boy. He lives here, the local guy uh, yep. in the Bay Area. So, uh, well, cool. Without further ado, man, let's just start rolling. There's really no agenda, just like any of the Skull such as podcasts. But, uh, you know, we're going to talk about the early days of metal. Of course, both Richie and Tom. Well, why don't you give, give say Richie and Tom again so people can distinguish you Irish fellas. All right. I'm Richie. And I'm Tom. Okay, you guys hear the difference there? I know it's good. You probably not much, don't. You think not you much said exactly this. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Richie, let's just hang up now and leave it. Okay, just forget well, it. Well, yeah. <laughs> we'll have to have a thing in the background. This is Richie talking. <laughs> yeah, this right. is Tom. <laughs> Tom. Here, Bob, you need subtitles, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, you, you guys both uh, grew up in Waterford, uh, Ireland, right? Just uh, mm-hmm. close to, uh, I guess, close to Dublin. Hence, you worked for Waterford Crystals. But both of you, I guess, grew up together, grew up high school, all that kind of shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, my, go, my, you take it. Well, my dad worked in Waterford Crystal for 32 years. I never worked there. Uh, Tom, Tommy did before. But um, I've known Tommy since he was about 16. My dad worked with his dad. And um, I moved to Dublin when I was about 21. And Tommy's kept living in Waterford, but we were into the metal scene very early. He was, he was into the metal a little bit before me. 
Tommy, what were your first albums? You bought albums like when you were 11 or 12, didn't you? Uh, the first, I remember it distinctly, the first two tapes I bought. So this was uh, 1981. I was 11 and I bought The Adventures of Thin Lizzy, which is effectively a best of, and Saxon Wheels of Steel. So I had these two tapes for months on it. That's all I had. And I remember, I remember Bob was telling you this, that I was in um, my uh, buddy's kitchen um, back in Ireland, back in 1980, 81 or whatever. And he had on, he was playing Thin Lizzy uh, Black Rose album. And if I can remember, the song was Do Anything You Want to Do. And I was walking past kind of the living room kitchen area and I stopped and goes, what is that? Who, who, the music just caught me. And he said, oh, it's a band called Thin Lizzy. And I was going, well, who the hell are they? And I mean, even, even though there were like gods in Ireland, I was only like 10 or 11. So only getting into music, not really aware of the music scene effectively. And that was my introduction to metal going and going, wow, this is something I want to know more about. And then that led to my two tapes, which I think I still have somewhere in the attic or something of the Thin Lizzy and Saxon. So that was my introduction into the whole world of, of metal and rock and everything else um, that came after that. Was that cassette or eight track? Mm. I was born in 1970, so it wasn't an A track. So you can you ah. can take that back immediately. But it was uh, it was it was an album. But like I mean, Black Rose came out in '79, so probably just around when um, Chinatown had been released in 1980. Maybe Renegade around that time. I heard it, and then I bought the tapes then in '81, and then we uh, the rest is history, as they say. Hey man, I had my uh, 1977 Mustang. Up through the 80s, I had an eight-track deck in there, and I was cranking eight-track wow. tanks all the time. So, well, you're you're an old folks, Bob, so that would explain everything, right? <laughs> yes, I, I am definitely the old man here on this podcast. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Richie, uh, that that of course was Tom that uh, told us his uh, little Thin Lizzy and Saxon story. What about you, Richie? When I got into metal, um, my dad loved status quo. Then, my I had a cousin of mine had Thin Lizzy. And you um, too, and, and that kind of stuff. And uh, I started getting into the heavier stuff. And then in the mid '80s, that was when uh, Bon Jovi started being played on the radio and, and Europe. And I knew this guy who worked in the videos, and he used to play music in there. And he introduced me to Rat and Tesla and TNT and Iron Maiden. And what I didn't realize at the time was that he was a friend of Tommy's. And they had a like there was a gang of those guys. I didn't go to school with Tommy, you see. Mm-hmm. He went to he went to a different school. So there was a gang of them that were all into metal. And I used to start him to tape stuff. So he'd go to Tommy's house and he'd tape stuff. He'd put a he'd tape an album and then he might put a couple of extra tracks to fill up a forty five minute and he mm-hmm. put Y and T on it. So I get into Y and T and then I got into Wasp and it, it just grew from there, but I think the, the album that definitely had a, a big impact on me was Life After Death, Iron Maiden. Had a massive impact on me. Um, I got into Maiden, then I got into the American hard rock. Um, but Tommy was definitely into metal uh, way before I was. I, I think I think what happened, Richie, was that um, like I'm a, what, a year older than you or 18 months older or whatever. So right now it doesn't make a difference. But then it was. And what I had access to, my like my introduction obviously was lizzie and sax and then you know discovered maiden and acdc because they were kind of the staples so i knew kind of three or four bands and that was it so there was no social media obviously at that stage i wasn't buying kerrang you know this is like 1982-83 i guess and then a buddy of mine um you know we call him cj richie knows who we're talking about uh, cj who again had an older brother so whilst i was listening to the staples i got connected with this guy and he had april wine and billy squire and girl and marseille 
Magnum, I just write in some of known Rush, Tigers, Diamond Head, Gillen, Gillen the band, more, you know, <coughs> shit like that. Um, Angel Witch, whatever. Nice. That, so that, All the yes, great new wave of British heavy metal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and Tokyo Blade and that type of thing. So, you know, so that, that kind of brought, we basically, or I had, which kind of brought Richie on, is I had a window into not just my buddy, but he again had an older brother. So he was getting shit imported from the UK and Europe that I was too young to do. First of all, I had no money. You know, and I didn't know how to write my name, let alone send like send off a postal order for a CD. So we had access to music, even like to a broad spectrum of music, even before I started buying Kerrang. So we were, you know, knowledgeable in commas from a very early age because we had access to older guys that were in the group. And even outside of that, there was some of the music <clears throat> that I didn't really like. I remember a guy called Pat Kennedy. You remember him, Richie, a guy called Pat Kennedy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was into Tangerine Dream and King Crimson and... Always. There was all like Jethro Tull and, and Tangerine Dream or whatever. But what, what that did again, it even broadened my spectrum even wider again because it was brought into stuff that wasn't metal and heavy rock, but I still could appreciate what was going on. So I got an even though I don't play an, an instrument, I can't play for shit, but I got a really early appreciation of musicianship even at that young age, as to what was a good bass player versus who wasn't. You know, you could tell the difference in Clive Burr versus Phil Rudd. Phil Rudd is a phenomenal, you know, drummer, but he's like, you know, you know, 442 type guy. So you could understand the technique of music because you were exposed so much to a wider audience, even at a young age. And that was really opened the door for me, for sure. Right on. Hey, I, I was wondering, because you, I mean, you mentioned a lot of bands, American bands, particularly from California, Rat, mm-hmm. Y&T, um, Wasp. Was that easy access in Ireland or were, were they available on no. import? No, no, were they no. Bob, you have to remember the town me and Tommy are from. There's, there's only like 60,000 people in it. Mm-hmm. There's like 5 million people in the whole country um, and we're an island. So to get that stuff was was difficult. There was definitely a lot of metal heads in Waterford mm-hmm. when we grew up. But what you tended to find was when a new album came out, the record stores would get like 10 copies and you'd have to fucking run in to get there first before they were all gone. Everyone knew they were coming out, but once they were gone, they were gone. And you're talking about like pre-internet. So it's mail order and you're dealing with all that shit. So it, it was, they weren't on the radio. They weren't on TV. Um, and the stuff was, sometimes it was hard to get. Were you getting like the BBC Friday rock show or a uh, top of the pops or Oh great whistle test in Ireland or no? We yes. were. We, we, uh, we got the Old Grey Whistle Test. Um, uh, we got that Top of the Pops is kind of, you know, that was pretty crappy. That pop. was pop music in the odd time you'd have. Although you know, they did have Motorhead. Or, yeah, or Mo- Maiden, yeah. yeah, Motorhead were on it. Like, and then you had all like the Bon Jovi's in Europe or whatever. But Top of the Pops wasn't the live recording. So I remember Maiden right. had a lot of hassle with, uh, I think it was Smallwood had a lot of problems with the producers because Maiden were a live band and whatever. But that was kind of crappy. But you know, and Richie was saying that we had access to, like, we we because we were we were hungry. We wanted information. You you couldn't get it. You had to go looking for it. Because I can remember on two separate occasions when Rat and Vision of Your Privacy came out, and I think it was made in peace of mind. I know the different years, but word got out that hey, the new Rat albums in town. So you went fuck. So you just had to get into town in this one or little two record shops to pick it up because you got in there. And then what happened was is we we got known by the the. You know, the um, shop assistants, they they put a copy aside for you and you'd bust in the door 
you know, and she's, oh, I got one here for you, Tom, you're covered. And she'd give it to you and you'd be, you'd be, you know, the usual story, you'd be walking home and you'd be like open, looking at the liner notes and feeling the cover and whatever, you know. So, uh, you know, but there are, there are early memories of um, the, the hunger for the knowledge. And again, this is before crying because we talk about that, but we had no access to anything except really what we were told and snippets of information on the uh, the radio or the TV or whatever, because Waterford is about two hours south of Dublin, small town. Oh, wow, southeast. that far. Yeah. yeah. And so okay. even if a band was coming to Ireland, they kind of went into Dublin and fucked off and that was it. So you didn't have a chance to see them, you know. So we were hungry metalheads, but we had to kind of almost scavenge for information to find out what was happening again before Kerrang! magazine, when, when Kerrang! came on board, that opened a whole world of information to us. That was our social media. Yeah, I mean, right speak, speaking of the, uh, you know, just getting, uh, continuing with the geographical uh, aspect of everything, like you said, you guys you came from Waterford, obviously that's Southern Ireland, where, I, you know, I've just yep. observed personally over the, you know, over the years, my ancestry is from Cork, right next to you guys there. Right. But I know, um, and I know other than really, I, just from my knowledge, other than, you know, for instance, you know, Rory Gallagher, there, most of the prominent uh, musicians, rock musicians, hard rock musicians, edgered, you know, types of uh, musicians from Ireland, a lot of them really, most of them that became successful outside of the country yeah. were mostly from Belfast and Northern Ireland, right, correct? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was very few, I mean, just from, like I said, my observation, was that, was really Belfast, was that more of the um, the prominent hard rock, you know, metal uh, area in Northern Ireland? I mean, obviously, and, and was that also due, because, due to a lot of the political unrest and all the turmoil that was going on in there do you think that was a lot of um i mean just just to get your guys opinion on when you grew up like mm-hmm. how it was you know when it came to that um well i, I, think, I think go rich you take it no no you take it tom go ahead um, <laughs> I, I think i think that uh like obviously with like the belfast link was obviously to um you know sweet savage and obviously um you know the Def Leppard connection down the line of course mm-hmm. um with vivian campbell but you know like when lizzie in the late 60s, early 70s, even before Whiskey in a Jar, which I think was 73, I think, um, like they had to go to England. And like, you know, Phil, Phil Liner wrote he, songs he about moved that. There, you know, yeah. He moved there. He lived there. To because yeah. there was no scene. You know, Gary Moore was from, you know, born in the UK, but obviously he's identified with Irish and he was more Northern Ireland. And of course, Rory Gallagher was born up in the Northwest and Donegal. And then he was, he was actually, you know, his kind of origins again, and his livelihood began in Cork. Uh, he moved at the same place as you, Matt, your family. Mm-hmm. So, but there wasn't really like Mama's Boys and stuff like that came out a little bit later on in the kind of the early mid eighties. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't really a heavy rock scene in Ireland. There was a couple of smaller bands made a bit of a splash in Europe, but did nothing in um, in uh, the US at all. Like nothing at all. But Belfast mm-hmm. had had um, like had did of a hub of a scene, but we weren't really. I only kind of found out about about that later in the day not whilst it was happening because again you're, you're talking about that knowledge information that we didn't have mm-hmm. you know you didn't read local newspapers and like the political True. unrest and that shit really didn't play a part to be honest i don't think that okay. it, that had any impact yeah okay. but there are a lot of songs i'm mean, obviously you too did a lot of songs but even then lizzie with gary moore out in the fields and and mm-hmm. different stuff so uh, obviously a lot of the bands uh we're writing about it. It was, uh, you know, in the early '80s. It was a big yeah. thing. I remember, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it became, it became more of a punk stuff. rock, I think, kind of area. Right? You had stiff little fingers and undertones and all those correct. kind of bands. Right? Undertones, yeah. cor- absolutely yeah. correct. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And then later on in the '90s, you had therapy I, and, and some of those bands too. Therapy. Right? Yeah. 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 I think Bob that the country wasn't big enough to really have a scene. Um, there was only two towns really that you'd get, you could really play in, and 
Dublin was one and Belfast was the other. Like, you couldn't tour Ireland. It just right. wasn't big enough to do it. Mm-hmm. As far as live shows, did you see many bands in Ireland or, or, I mean, or just like the local Irish bands? Or did you have to go to England to see like the big, you know, international rock bands? Um, I'd say I'd say both. It was Tommy, what? Both, wasn't it, Rich? Um, yeah, I think you, you started going. I think one of the first gigs I went to was Donington in 87. Um, I think you went before me, though, to a couple of Donningtons. I did. I mean, like, just two, th- two, you know, angles here. Number one, I saw we saw a lot of bands in, like, a lot of bands European. But uh, when they played European tours, they often started in Ireland. So they would, you know, because it's an island, you have to remember it was an additional cost. So if somebody went to the UK, they had to, you know, get the ferry over, put all the gear on and whatnot, and roadies and shit, and then go back over and then commence the European tour. So often they started in Ireland. Because geographically you started there and kept on going, or else they didn't come to Ireland at all. Because not that the fans weren't there; it was just an additional cost and hassle. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. and they didn't do it. But yeah, no, we saw a lot of bands for sure in Ireland. I mean, I'm looking at some of like like Skid Row '91. I've got them all here. Extreme Mm -hmm. '91, Slayer, early days, Europe '89. So there was a lot of bands. Obviously, when you say Skid Row, which Skid Row? Yeah, which which one? Yeah. Oh no, this Gary well, yeah. Morris get roped yeah. up by her. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, yeah. see again, Bob. I'm not. Oh, I'm not young enough for. I, you know, you got to look yeah. at the age here. Not the the, the Gary Morris get roped. Unfortunately, I didn't see that. But the Donington one is an interesting because you know the Donington Festival now is um, you know became download and whatever the fuck they call it. But you know Donington back in the uh, the front up to about the mid 90s was like the mecca of venues and. You you said Richie came in eighty seven, but I went to the eighty six one. So I was I was fifteen when I went to that. So again, I had to travel to the UK to see that one, and that was Ozzy, Scorps, um, Def Leppard, Motorhead, and Warlock. I remember, um, uh, yeah, I remember like looking at that. That was incredible. And then Richie, the when you, you we went to was uh, Bon Jovi, bon Jovi. Dio, Metallica, Anthrax, Wasp, Anthrax, Cinderella, Wasp, and yeah, Cinderella. Yeah, that, and then yeah. I went to three more. I went to 88. 88 was the best one. I remember there was 107,000 people at that one. Made I just I wrote it down. I'm not that good to remember this shit, but Maiden, uh, Kiss, Devilly Rot, Megadeth, Guns N' Roses, and Halloween, and that was unbelievable. And then there was a couple of years I stopped going because the uh, the venue uh, the the lineup wasn't as good. Came back in 91. ACDC, Metallica, Motley, Queensrÿche, and Black Crows played. And then 96 was the last year I went. Again, I'm at this stage of getting into my kind of late 20s. Bands were starting to come to Ireland, so I didn't have to travel as much. And that was Kiss, Ozzy, Sepultura. And I remember that was one of the gigs they played without Max Cavalier because his stepson had died, I think. And Max actually didn't perform. They performed as a three-piece. I was going, shit. I mean, I wanted to see Max wow. Cavalier. What happened to Max? I think his stepson or something, he died. Or oh, got yes. Uh, he got killed, yes. Yeah, and and that yeah. was that time. And then Max flew back, I think, to Brazil or whatever. And then they played as a three-piece. And there was Dog Eat Dog, Paradise Lost, and Fear Factory. So that was yeah. the five Donningtons. So we were able to, even though we didn't get a fill of a lot of bands coming to, to, to Ireland, I was it. that was my big annual event to travel to the UK, go with a couple of guys and drink beer and watch heavy rock in the sun it was uh, i'll never forget it one of the best days of my life has been over there incredible yeah i just got one thing to add to that the one thing you have to remember bob was for us to get from waterford to donnington you had to like get a bus which was 100 miles then you had to get a ferry which was a few hours then you had to get on a bus 
to go to Donington. Like if you were to fly to England, it was probably at the time it was very, very expensive. There was no, none of the low cost airlines that you have now. So it was yeah. a major hassle to even get there. And you were going there at 15, huh? Did your parents allow you to, or were you there with other friends or older friends? No, I think, calls I, out I, th- I think what it was is that we just, we just <clears throat> loved the music so much. It was such a passion. And I was like, please, dad, please, mama, I'll, I'll be careful. I won't drink, whatever. You were, you were <laughs> begging and doing anything to do it. And somehow they, you know, looking back on it, I, I've got a 15-year-old girl you know, 18-year-old son right now. Not a hope in hell would I leave my 15-year-old travel to another country <laughs> yeah. like, to stand in the field with 70,000 metalheads. Not a chance. But I, I think we were, you know, we were good kids. You know, we were never in trouble. And we just loved and adored the music. And I think our parents could see the the passion. And I think we just bugged the shit out of them. They said, oh, fuck it. Just go. Just be safe. Be careful. And we didn't even have cell phones back then. So there, was not, there yeah. wasn't even a contact. So mm-hmm. you're right, Bob. Looking back, I was going, how the hell did my you know, yeah. mom and dad allow me to do that? I don't know. And by the way, listeners, these guys weren't good people. They were the ones that were throwing the piss bottles. The Irish guys, <laughs> the whole piss bottle thing at Donington, is that, right? Is that, is that story, is, um, is that, story uh, that known over here? Of course, the Irish. Yeah. of course, of course it is. Yeah, but, that, but that's a true story. Like bad when you, news. Yeah. When you went over there, that's what happened. You stood in the field with all of these people. And then, you know, like the bottle throwing would happen at any given time for no reason, apparently. And then they just everybody just throws like and they like piss in the bottle, throw it on the stage. It was a buddy of mine got hit by a cooked chicken. He was like he just got this big chicken hit him in the face and he yeah. So he just threw that back out. So it was just crazy shit. So yeah, we we there. those those uh, those scenes that you see like we were there doing that and in that. It was incredible. Yeah, they, they were like one liter plastic bottles, so people know oh, they yeah. weren't. Like small glass bottles, they were like no, they were like they were plastic, but like you 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 brought in your water, your beer, and then like some guy would be standing right next to you, and he'd just take his dick out, piss in the bottle, and just throw it at somebody, and that's just, going, <laughs> that's, that's just what happened. I'm not even exaggerating. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. Hey, Tommy, Tommy, tell tell him the story about me man going over and falling asleep at the end of Halloween with all the drink he'd had. Remember that oh, one? Yeah. Go on, tell him that one. I do. Yeah, there was one one particular guy that. You know, we used to, the, the local record store would, you know, hire this small little mini bus van thingy with maybe 10, 15 little metalheads on it. And one guy started drinking in um, in Waterford as we were leaving. And as Richie said, we had probably 10 or 12 hours to get there with the bus and the ferry and wait times, whatever. So he, he started drinking then. So he got to Donington hammered, totally smashed. So he saw Halloween or the opening, the opening song or whatever. Uh, like Michael Kiske saying, welcome everybody or whatever. And then he woke up for the encore of Iron, Iron Maiden. So he missed <laughs> the entire, so he missed the entire show. So like, I mean, think of it, he missed like, he missed Kiss, David Lee Roth, Megadeth, Guns N' Roses, missed them all. This is before Guns N' Roses, they were just about breaking at that time, remember? And he woke yeah. up for the encore of Maiden, which I'm presuming was the song Iron Maiden. And unfortunately, that was the year the two kids were killed. If you remember that story, the two guys got, um, they got mm-hmm. squashed. They got uh, died, unfortunately. Yeah. Wow. And Matt, uh, I know Matt's an East Coast guy in New York. Richie and uh, Tom, you guys moved to uh, Boston around the same time, right? Pretty much. Or who, who, no, moved, who moved out? No, I, I moved here um, nearly 10 years ago. My wife is from here. And and this is Richie. Song. Right? Yeah, this is Richie. So, <laughs> like, the thing, the thing is, I, I moved away from Waterford when I was in in my early 20s and Tommy lived there for a lot longer than I did and um, 
I met my wife in Dublin. She was from here. And then I moved here about nine years ago. And then about five years ago, Tommy says, um, there's a chance I'm going to be moving to New Jersey. And I'm like, no shit. And then it, it went from a chance to actually happening. Yeah. So I think Tommy moved here, I think like five years ago, but none of uh, this Kibichi, was, that was planned. That was, six, that was six and a half years ago. I'll be here. Uh, no six, way. Six, six, uh, <laughs> actually, no, six years. Apologies. Six years in um, six and a half years. I correct myself in June of this year, six and a half years. So that story Jesus. you're telling is seven years old. because about a year before we started planning it. And I moved to, um, to Jersey um, six and a half years ago. And Richie and I then, you know, obviously we're buddies from back then. And then we just, we talk all the time and catch a couple of gigs when we can. Even Bob, you're right that this podcast initially was supposed to take place two weeks ago because Richie was going to come down for the Lynch Mob gig and they're doing the yeah. Wicked Sensation tour and obviously that didn't happen for obvious reasons so did you guys ever get a chance to to see when you were living back in ireland the iconic celtic rock band the pioneers horse lips at all because i mean i didn't you didn't I, okay. i'll tell you a good i i knew i know eamon carr the drummer okay the drummer yes yeah, sure. um he used to write for um the irish times and when i moved to dublin i had a friend of mine who knew eamon mm. so um i used to talk to eamon and eamon would give me free tickets to gigs in the Olympia, because uh, he, he'd work for the press. So he'd say, look, I've got free tickets. I'm not going to bother my arse going. So like he gave me tickets to see Fish. And there was a couple of other acts that I'd go. And the bands would be on at midnight. Like Fish played at midnight one night in the Olympia. Oh, Everyone in there was fucking hammered. <laughs> you know? And because um, yeah. um, that's the other thing about, about living in Ireland. All the gigs are on a lot earlier than they are here. The, you know, the, the gigs had finished at, at like 11 o'clock. Like when, when Guns N' Roses played, I think it was probably about 10 years ago. And it, it was actually, it, it made blabbermouth and everything. Axel Rose decided just before he got back with Slash, he came on a couple of hours late. And what you have to realize about Ireland is everybody has to, they might have to travel a couple of hours to get there. They might have buses waiting for him to bring him back. Axel pulls the usual stunt. And um, a lot of people, he got booed. And he got really booed because the Irish won't put up with that shit. And he came on stage at like 11.30. But the, the gigs there normally start at the latest around 9 o'clock. Well, here they do too, I think, for the opening bands. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, actually, he's, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, speaking oh. to New Jersey back in the day, you know, when they were on that tour with Metallica, he did the same exact thing about came out. About 11 o'clock he came out. Talk was finished at nine o'clock. Everyone's waiting for two hours, and then he got all—he's all pissed off because nobody's feeling up for it. I mean, everyone's tired; they're ready to go home, and he's yeah, all mad yeah. to crab because no one's getting all pumped up for for Guns N' Roses. So, yeah, I guess that's pretty—that's uh, just a run-of-the-mill staple, I guess, kind of thing for for good old Axel there. Did you move to New Jersey or to Boston, Richie? No, I moved to just north of Boston, Bob. I just want to bring it back there to something you mentioned earlier on about gigs in Ireland. One of the problems we had, and Tommy will pro- I'm sure Tommy will agree with me, Kerrang used to only cover the UK dates. And yeah. sometimes it was, hard, it was hard to find out when bands were playing because they used to only play in Dublin. And if they poster Dublin with the gigs, we'd never see it. And we also got screwed a lot on opening acts. You turn up to, in the hope to see like a name band as an opener. And this local band had come on. And you get screwed shit, yeah. over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And our, one, one of the ones that stands out to me was Queensryche played the opening night of the Empire World Tour was in the SFX in Dublin in, I think it was 91. Yeah. And Lynch Mob 
we're talking about lynch mobs. So lynch mob were supposed were supposed we we figured were opening because they were doing the UK dates and they were on Wicked Sensation with only Logan. Oh, yeah. And we we arrived up to the venue and this local band came on and we were like ah fuck like we that happened so often we got screwed because when you bought the tickets most of the time it'd never say it, the opening act it'd say plus support. So you're going up on a hope and a prayer that the band that are playing in the UK, who's who could be pretty decent and a big name, would be on the bill. And we all we got fucked over so many times because it was never them that turned up. Yeah, right. that, but we had the bar. You mentioned about traveling to the UK. I mean, if there's a band that we really wanted to see and we were, you know, we had the money and got permission from our parents and all of the above or whatever, we did it. Like we went to see Rush many times, and I think we. Uh, were you at the one Richie? We went to see um, White Snake and Gary Moore YNT. Were you at no. that one in, in Birmingham? No, I didn't go to that. Um, so we. So and one one of the best gigs, and I traveled for this one was Diamond Head when Sean Harris ah. came back in the band because Diamond had went away for a couple of years. You can remember yeah. after uh, Canterbury or whatever, and then they just disappeared. And then they came back, I think in 1990, uh, something like that. But I saw them on that tour um, with Sean Harris and Tatler, and they played in Nottingham Rock City, which I know is a pretty famous venue. Um, and that was incredible. And I still have the T-shirt from the gig. And that was 90, I was 21 at that stage. So that was one of the, the things that you had to do in order to see it. Like you, you came up with the money somehow, you took a day off work, you got permission to do whatever it was. And you made it happen. And I, I, and I, I think I've got most of the, the concerts, uh, you know, the stubs from the, the tickets or whatever. And looking back on it, I'm looking at the gigs that I went to. And then I'm trying to think, what gigs did I not go to? Because I, I can't remember those. ones. Why did the fuck didn't they go to half those bands that I should have went? Because they're great memories and great opportunities to see it. And, you know, Diamond Head with Sean Harris. I mean, who the hell can say that? Um, you know, very few people to see that where it's the first incarnation of the second. But, you know, where, where we had the time, the wherewithal to do it, the distance didn't matter. We just did it, you know, because it was all about the music, man. <laughs> you just had to see it. And that was it. You know, we, since I moved over here, people, people would say, you know, I'm not going to go. It's an hour away. Like we, we, we had no problem going up on a Tuesday night, spending three or four hours on a shitty bus going 200 miles, like 100 miles up and 100 miles back, getting home yeah. at 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning. Because to us, this was the only chance we were going to get to see these bands. These bands didn't come around every year. Mm -hmm. Like an example to me be like Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden never played in Ireland until No Prayer for the Dying. So you had 10 years where they were one of the biggest metal bands in the world. They do 20, 25 dates in England. Bob, you probably had a chance to see them in Long Beach Arena and all these places. Many we times. never got this. Yeah, we never got a chance to see them until 1991. Wow. And, wow. And, and now these bands are playing all over Ireland, right? I mean, they're playing everywhere. It's not like they're just playing Dublin. I, mean, I, I see a lot of big bands doing like big tours of at least four to five cities in Ireland, you know, per tour. Yeah, I think, well, I think bands are seeing the fact that they they can fill venues mm -hmm. and they can you know, they can make money and like they've and. And it's, you know, yeah, we, we get that it's a business, you know, we get that, we'd hear that all the time. But, you know, a lot of fans were just starving for, for good music and good tours and good support bands. So when they come, you'd often hear, um, when I was there, you know, when I, I saw Mr. Big a couple of years back and, um, you know, they were talking about, holy shit, I never realized that we had such a following. There was like a thousand people there. And I, they, I don't think they knew that, you know, that they could pull that kind of crowd there because the audience is there. There's a lot of rockers, a lot of metalheads in Ireland. Like we're a small country, it's only like 4.8 million or whatever. But then there's there's only, like Richie said, there's only 
maybe three or four big cities that can that that's worth going to. You're not mm-hmm. going to play to some Hicksville town like for 200 people. That's not going to be worth your money. It's not like you're on a traveling tour bus in the United States where you can state hop and pick up gigs along the way. You had to plan this very carefully and coordinated to make sure that you got the biggest bang for your buck if you're getting on an airplane or you know on a on a boat you know because we're an island and that always mm-hmm. caused the problems. But you know the the the, the appetite is there. You know, you know, I don't subscribe to rock is dead at all. I think that's bullshit. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's just gone a little bit underground. But it's, the media jumps in and out of rock and metal music. That's mm-hmm. all it is. It's, it never goes away. They, they jump sure. in and out of it. And then the, the presumption it is, is that it's not there. But it's always there. It's always mm-hmm. been. And, and if you were a band growing up in Ireland, a rock or metal band, I mean, you had to have obviously relocated to London or somewhere, you know, somewhere like that, right? In order to get discovered, there was no music business people, no A and R people, no, you know, anybody in the business coming over to Ireland looking for any talent. I mean, I'm I'm just assuming that, correct? They'd they'd look for you, but then they'd tell you, right, you got to move, you got to move down, you got to go over here. Was there gotta, was there a local metal scene there? Did you have like metal clubs and bars? Like you know, England, uh, London obviously had the Marquee and you know the Rainbow and all these other. Did you have that in Ireland and at least Belfast or uh, uh, Dublin? I'm not, I'm, Bob, I'm not sure about Belfast. I know in Dublin there was a couple of bars, but there was one store in Dublin called the Sound Cellar, mm-hmm. and it sold like vinyl and CDs, and a lot of it was catered for us as metalheads. And it's it's actually still there, and I'm amazed it's still there. But it was one of these places where, you know, you had your HMVs and your Tower Records, and they knew nothing about metal. And you'd walk into this place, and no word of a lie, every time you'd walk in, there'd be something like a creator playing over the speakers. Yeah. And right. it, was this little, it was like this little dingy cellar place. It was tiny. But the fucking guys that ran it, they knew everything. Like, you'd walk in there and the guy would look at you and he'd know what you like and say, oh, you got this the last time. Maybe you want to listen to this. And he'd put you on the right path and all that. And it, Like, they were fucking great for doing that. Um, but we used to travel up probably every every Christmas or every second Christmas. And we'd go in there and we'd just you'd buy, like... up, just buy a shit yeah. kind of stuff. Tommy, you went to Shades in London, didn't you? Yeah, when uh, Shades and that, was, that was another one. Yeah, because I, I was on a school tour um, in, we were uh, like a day in London and a day in Paris or something on a school tour, which like from Ireland, it's obviously easy to get to. And I remember being in Shades and in Virgin Megastore and there was me and uh, another guy, Anthony Brennan, another uh, cousin of mine who was a big rocker and still is and we're still friends. And we actually ended up holding up the entire bus because we we were rummaging through the bins in um in in shades and i remember walking out with deep purple and rock and and tokyo tapes and heavy petting there's a mix um right. and all that kind of crap you know and just like grabbing shit as you're walking out the door because remember our local record store you'd have to mail order it so it wasn't in front of you so you walked into this this like the the, the metal section in shades or uh like in in dublin or tell records and then you were looking at stuff that you knew existed, but you had never seen before. So your eyes were just falling out of your head and you were walking out of the store with bags of records, vinyl at the time, this before CDs. You, you couldn't get enough of it. Like you were just, and then you'd go back down on the train if you were on a day trip and you'd, be, you'd have it all spread out on the tables in the train and you were, you know, reading all the notes and you were just couldn't wait to get home. So as I said, we, we had an incredible appetite when we were this young. But, and, and one thing I know you're going to touch on, Bob, too, is that, when crying when we got like crying was out a couple of years before uh like in 1981 or whatever so we started 
buying Krang, and certainly in my case, maybe 83, 84, I was like 13, 14. Right. That was the opening. That was the floodgates of information, the Sunset Strip, and what was going on in the States and tours and interviews with, you know, whoever that we didn't have. We didn't have access to except the odd little piece of information because this is no internet. I mean, it's not that long ago, but there was no internet, no social media. Um, there was no rock mag that I knew of. And then Kerrang landed on my doorstep. And then it was like, boom, what yeah. is going on out here? And I, I, I was able to view the metal scene around the world through Kerrang. And Richie, you know that, and you can talk with this, Richie, that you did um, like a six or seven episodes on, on Kerrang and spoke to all of the guys there. So Kerrang was the Bible for great. us. Whatever, whatever Kerrang said, we believed. That was as simple yeah. as that. Well, it was the same for me. I mean, in, in L.A., Orange County, that was my Bible. When the first issue, I remember that first issue of Kerrang came out, that was, I mean, I obviously was aware, and I had albums from, you know, Motorhead, Ace mm-hmm. of Spades, and, and Saxon, Wheels of Steel, the debut Maiden record, and a few other bands. Uh, but most of the new wave of British heavy metal I discovered through Kerrang, you know, the neat records, bands, the armed and ready section and all that. So that became our Bible as well for everything, you know, European metal. And, and even, you know, the, the ironic thing about Kerrang is they were the first to do a lot of the American bands like Twisted Sister or Motley Crue or The Rods or Anvil from Canada. First time I, uh, you would hear about, the, I mean, obviously I knew Motley Crue from, they were in L.A., but they were, all those bands were getting press in Kerrang! in the British magazines before any of the American magazines. Well, and Mal- but Metallica, Kray, of course. But Kerrang! used to give covers to, like, they'd give, like, I remember um, uh, Dan Reed Network and, uh, like, you know, I'm yeah. trying to think of some of the bands, but they'd give covers to somebody that you would never heard of. So an unknown band would not land on the cover of a rock magazine, he was going, who the hell are these guys? But they believed in that so much. Like, Krang launched bands. They were, they were that oh, powerful. Totally. Well, like, Dan they, Reed Network, well, I think he's from Seattle area, or he's from Oregon, or where's where he from? Uh, somewhere in that Portland, uh, Seattle yeah. area, Portland, yeah. And he, nobody knew of him here. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, in Europe, they opened up for the Rolling Stones, and they opened up for Prince. And, yeah. you know, everyone in Europe was talking about Dan Reed Network, and I'm like, where are they from? They're like, dude, they're from America. <laughs> they're from, how do I not know about them? So obviously I got to know about them. I mean, you know, there are still bands like, like, like you know, Danko Jones and a few other bands yeah. that are much, much more popular, obviously, in Europe. But, you know, Ireland, I always thought, you know, Thin Lizzy and Rory Gallagher. And, and of course, Gary Moore. Uh, you know, you listen to Early Taste and Early Rory Gallagher. I mean, I got into them when the, when the Top Priority record came out. I mean, I, I knew of them, but I remember that was getting the song Follow Me and Fill Me. Yeah. was actually on the radio. It was like, the guitar solo and uh, Follow Me, one of my favorite guitar solos. Love his solos on that. Uh, Just Hit Town. Such a great heavy album. And I backtracked, but hearing Gary Moore and Rory Gallagher and some of these guitar players from Ireland, they had such a unique sound and it was, they would do blues, but it wasn't like the Southern blues guys. It wasn't, yeah. you know, it was the Irish blues. It was like Irish folk meets blues. Yeah. You know, I mean, the Celt- it, it was influences a to it, yeah. total Celtic yeah, influence. Definitely. Exactly. So uh, Bob, that, that episode, on that point, that episode, and I urge anybody who's listening to this to backtrack and listen to the interview you did with uh, Bob Daisley a couple, about a year ago, whatever, and because he was speaking about the, the Gary Moore tribute album, We Want More, and he right. spoke about the sound of the Irish guitar player, that it wasn't all like Irish music, like traditional music, but it had it had that something that was so unique, so identifable as Irish, um, but it was still a rock guitar player. I mean, you know, Matt, on your point, there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, a huge amount of, you know, rock bands that came from Ireland. Like you can, mm. like you could go all day long about the UK, but if you were to just, 
mentioned three, Lizzie, Gallagher, and Gary Moore. Monsters. I think that's enough, right? Exactly. You know, monsters. I mean, just yep. those three right there are just behemoths mm-hmm. even in the scene. I mean, you look at the influences Absolutely. that everybody and anybody talks about Gary Moore and Rory Gallagher and Phil Liner today. I mean, they're almost cool to mention those guys. Oh, my influences are Gary Moore and Rory Gallagher. Those guys were so talented. And I, I was always a Lizzie fan, as, as Richie was always a Gary Moore fan, but believe it or not, I only discovered, when I say discovered, I heard him a lot of time, was Rory Gallagher's catalogue in the last couple of years, and I'm just kind of thinking, uh, how did I, how did I Irish man that, oh, you yeah, should be I shot. Know. I know, <laughs> you should be. Bob, Bob, you have to, you have to let, let's talk about radio for a minute, because we're mentioning Gary Moore, and we're mentioning Tim Lizzie and, and Rory Gallagher. When we were growing up on the radio, it was you too. It was you yeah. two, mm. and it was Simple Minds, and here, here. we knew of Tin Lizzie. Um, mm. They didn't play really Rory Gallagher, um, right. and yeah. they didn't really play rock music. So mm. we, we we had to find these things out by this guy holding an album up in front of us and saying, "Oh, you're into this now. You have to listen to this guy." Mm. That, that's how we found out about about yeah. all these bands. Yeah, I mean, well, same here, right, Bob? I mean, Bob could test this. I mean, in terms of Thin Lizzy, Gary Moore, and Rory Gallagher, I mean. There are not a lot of people here. I mean, myself, I mean, Thin Lizzy no. here was all boys are back in boys town, are back like in town and that's it. Maybe yeah. jailbreak, jailbreak and that's maybe. it. Maybe that's it. I mean, Rory yeah. Gallagher, Gary Moore, nothing, nothing. So it's like, unless you were really a diehard, you know, uh, metal fan or hard rock fan, you weren't, you weren't not going to discover this stuff at all. So it's, uh, no, it's very interesting. Yeah. Cause it's, it's it, in the States here. We're very played very little on the radio. Very, very, very minimal. Oh, I was just going to say, Bob. you mentioned that uh, Bob Daisley interview. See, I told you, Matt, I told you we had a few listeners for the Skull Sessions. <laughs> that just proves that he listened to the show. There you go. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was laughing with Bob, and he said, uh, you know, I saw Gary Moore play on the Wild Frontier tour, and this obviously was when he was huge all over Europe, mm-hmm. playing huge arenas and stadiums. He played at a tiny club called Jezebel's in Anaheim, maybe, uh, you know, fit 300 people. And here I'm seeing, you know, Bob Daisley and, you know, with Gary Moore and uh, Eric Singer and uh, Neil Carter. And uh, I think it was a Neil Carter interview. Actually, it was a Neil Carter interview that I did. And he thought it was a joke when they gave him the tour dates of these clubs. <laughs> and he's like, what? You're, you're joking, right? Because he just joined, you know, Gary Moore. And he knew Gary Moore was just huge. You know, they're playing all these huge venues all over the world. And then they come to America and they're saying these 300 seat clubs. And he's like, calling the promoter or calling the agent. This is a joke, right? This is a joke. <laughs> but it wasn't a joke. That's, you know, Gary Moore, not too many people knew. I, I guess after Still Got the Blues is, is when people started really getting to know him. But all those earlier records, they got, you know, like the smaller metal stations, KNAC, they would play, uh, you know, some of the songs, you know, from his solo records, but not much. But I know I know that Gary Moore, like, and uh, uh, if I can recall back in the interview that, Bob Daisley was talking to Gary and he was saying, look, this is going to be, you know, the making of you. And then Gary said, oh, I'm not too sure. And he was kind of on the fence about taking like the heavy rock, you know, you know, put it to the side and then going on the blues rock kind of, um, you know, uh, direction. And that ended up sending like three million copies or something. So he went from, you know, uh, going through a transition period to a completely different style of music and becoming bigger than ever. Which and yeah, I'm, sure sounds, the, yeah. I, I'm sure it's a, it's an incredible story, but you, you talk about that, Bob. But if you even take a band today like Alter Bridge, Alter Bridge in the states, I saw them a couple of years back. 
you know, there's probably 1,500, 2,000 people in the club I was in. Um, if I can remember, Black Country Communion, actually. No, not Black Country Communion. A California Breed. California Breed. Right. Mm. Yeah, with, with Andrew Watt, just yeah. produced mm. the new Ozzy album. He was on guitar with them. I didn't know who he was. And and they play, um, they they played, you know, 1,500, 2,000 people ever. But they're an arena act in Europe. They, they'll sell out Wembley Arena and sell 20,000 tickets. I, mm-hmm. I see them all over the, the British magazines, you know, classic rock, all that. Yeah. These bands aren't even huge here. Uh, what's the other band? Um, Rival Sons. They always uh, rave about them. And yeah, they're just starting to get a role here in the States, but uh, not nearly as big as they are all over Europe. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really fond of them. I've, I've heard them a few times. They're all right. I'm, I'm bad, with but... you. Yeah, they're okay. I don't think they're nothing yeah. that's, that's different yeah. or anything innovative. I agree. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm going to flip that because in the, in the late 80s, you had all these bands that they're, they're like, I know they're termed hair metal bands, and I hate that term, but you know what I'm talking about, like the arena bands, like Winger and Slaughter mm-hmm. and, and like Skid Row, maybe, all these kind of bands. And they were playing like on the arena level over here, and um, they wouldn't play. Over here in the U.S.? In Europe. In Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the U.S. So they wouldn't really play in Europe. And we got, we got starved of like, That's we right. want them to come over. Mm-hmm. Um, I've interviewed a few of the guys and, and they'd be like, I never knew we had the following. And wow. I'm like, well, you put all your eggs in one basket, which was the US. Mm-hmm. And then when grunge hit, you had nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. Yeah. And your career went down to shitter. And when you look at the likes of when you look at the likes of Bon Jovi and all and some of the some of these bands like that, mm-hmm. Bon Jovi, every album always toured Europe, every single record. Yes, right. And when yeah, and then in the nineties, well, <laughs> yeah, but they were, but they still kept coming over. They could have just kept touring the states, and um, they kept touring Europe. And then when the when the, when it went down in in the US, they were able that's to call to Europe. But that's why that's why Richie, that like back then, even up to a couple of years ago, you earned your fans and your reputation t- through touring. Um, that's how you did it. Mm-hmm. And you just take a band like Slaughter or Firehouse or bands like that. You know, great bands. I love them both. But they toured the U.S. because, you know, that's where the money was. That's where the audience was. You had a very short-sighted promoter or tour manager. Said, ah, you don't need Europe. You're doing fine here. You're making some money over here. But you're right then, Richie, that when Bon Jovi then, when the shit hit the fan in the early 90s, like with Soundgarden and Pearl Jam or whatever, and I'm a big fan of those bands, um, you know, Bon Jovi had already built up that fan base just from touring. Mm-hmm. So when the because when the U.S. market went soft, hey, Bon Jovi just played in Australia to eighty thousand people. They didn't give a shit, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The one thing you have to understand about a European audience, and, and this applies to the Irish audience too, is because we're starved of it. If you're a band and you actually make the effort to come over and put on a show, we'll remember you. Mm-hmm. If you don't bother your arse coming over at all, we don't really give a shit about you. So if you keep coming over and putting on any sort of a decent show at all, we're very loyal. And when something happens to your own market in the U.S., we'll always remember you. You can always keep coming back here. It's like it's like the Japanese market. Like a lot yeah. of these 80s bands ended up playing in Japan. But the problem with Japan is you can't make a year's income touring in Japan. But they, lo- they still love you there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you look at bands like Mr. Big, and I mean, they were a savior to Mr. Big, Doc, and a lot of the 80s, you know, so-called hair metal bands. They were selling huge amounts in uh, Japan, and they were playing Budokan uh, in Japan. I mean, they were playing big arenas. And uh, yeah, that lasted for about a good 10 or so years throughout the whole 90s and into the early 2000s. And I mean, even still to this day, Mr. Big and bands like that are huge out there in Japan. I mean, mega huge. 
The one thing that I never really understood is that <clears throat> when uh, I, I can only speak personally, I know Richie's the same. So we we started out, you know, on our timeline. So we got introduced to metal in the early 90s. And then we, you know, backtracked to, you know, Bobby spoke about Rainbow and, you know, uh, Long of Rock and Roll and Rising and shit. So we ended up discovering that a couple of years later, like in the early 80s. But as the music changed, so you know, album came out, then the hair metal scene kicked in. You know, and that, you know, lasted until 89, 90. And then, you know, everything started changing again. And grunge came in and then new metal came in, which the 90s was just a shit show of a lot of rock bands. It really was. I mean, I know rock and metal was in the doldrums, but a lot of the music, the pure substance wasn't there. There's just a lot of shit bands that came out in the 90s. They really did. You know, Hootie and the Blowfish and all that kind of crap. But I think what happened was is that I never understood why you had to stop listening to Warrant and start listening to Pearl Jam. I just listened to both. Listen I just both. kept mm-hmm. on, you know, when Dog, Doggy Dog came up by Warrant, I said, wow, that's a great album. Okay, they changed out. They started wearing black leathers and whatever, you know, trying to be cool and be the cool kids again. But I, I love Warrant. And then I, I, like, I went in, like, to our little record store and bought the new <coughs> Warrant the new album Warrant and then, pick, and then, pick, and, and then and picked then up Pearl Jam with it. I, I didn't Pearl stop Jam buying one genre and then pick up another. So I never quite understood why it just went away and then the new thing came in. And then grunge went away and then new metal came in. I think it's all fashion. It was more of a fashion. Not, that's what yeah. it was. It was exactly. totally fashion. It was media-driven. Yeah. And it was the point where this is cool. And if you listen to... You know, this hair metal, that's uncool. Oh, that's, you know, and that was where the whole political correctness thing came in. And, you know, the all the 80s bands that we're talking about, you mm. know, let's face it, the lyrics were getting pretty fucking lame and pretty repetitive. Yeah, I agree. Same the songs. And, and it, so it became that. And it's like, oh, this is, you know, oh, this is uncool. This is this is so 80s, you know, was, was a term. And you got to be hip with the 90s. And so it was really fashion driven. I mean, the whole fashion industry took to grunge. I remember when, you know, the metal scene came out, you know, wearing, you know, whether it be leather and, and spikes to shows or, or just around town or spandex or, you know, leopard kind of stuff. That was not cool. That was not mainstream. That was only sold in certain shops in Hollywood Boulevard or Melrose. But when the grunge fashion hit, that was sold in Sears and Kmart and Macy's yeah, and exactly. you know, look. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was so. And what I laugh about that, I, and I've said this in, in other podcasts talking about grunge, and I, I loved a lot. Of, I loved the you know when Loud Love came out by Soundgarden, and loved and still love Alice in Chains and a lot of those bands. I, I totally dig, but it was just such a, a joke because they were considered this underground. The, the grunge is so underground, and I'm thinking. Dude, these bands are more corporate than Bon Jovi ever oh, yeah. was, mm-hmm. you know, and they hated the money. They weren't about being this rock star. It's like, dude, these bands. Are... And this was the 90s. They were getting bigger and better deals from the labels and stuff. They weren't getting screwed over as much as the bands from the 70s or 80s because, you know, they got to understand the business. They had better attorneys, better labels. These bands were making more money. And then you have, you know, the Tom Morellos of the world, you know, talking about anti-corporate structure and how. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's like, dude, you're you're the biggest example of that. You know, get off your high horse, and that's what really bugged me about it. But you're right; it was it was uh, just considered uncool. And if anyone listened to that stuff, and, and it was a complete changeover. It wasn't like when when punk came, there was still a, a media for rock and metal and prog and and all that stuff. You know, radio stations. 
it completely changed over with grunge. It was the pure rock stations or the, you know, the stations that would play the eighties metal all turned over to nineties, mm-hmm. you know, where there'd be alternative grunge, you know, from smashing pumpkins to chili peppers to change addiction to all the Seattle bands. It was that whole changeover and it was that exclusively, you know? So yeah. Well, that, Bob, Bob, was it, was it, was it the same, uh, you know, so this is something I don't know. So was it the, what, like, did a guy look like Brett Michaels one day and then he looked like Eddie Vedder the next Like, Was it, was it a transition of people or did a whole new scene of people come on and start buying grunge and then the rock, you know, the rock guys from the eighties just went away. Cause I oh, we're not into rock anymore. We're, you know, we're too cool for this. We're yuppies or whatever. Or did people just stop buying winger records and then walk out and buy a Pearl Jam? No, it, it was a transition over at least four to five years. Remember, in the early nine, in 1990-91, metal was still huge. Uh, of, of course, the thrash metal became big. I mean, Metallica was one of the biggest bands in the world. Yeah. You, had, you know, all the other bands, you know, Pantera was coming out, all the uh, real heavy bands, Anthrax, Megadeth. You know, they were putting out their great, you know, Rust in Peace. All those albums came out in the in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, the uh, hair metal bands were still doing huge numbers, including Including on Guns N' Roses, uh, for one. All those bands, you know, your and newer bands were coming out. Love, Hate, and, uh, you know, uh, Jackal and whatever. And they were, you know, they were selling millions of records despite that. So it took a little while. And then slowly it just became more and more all about the grunge of the labels. It was, it was basically the labels. You know, and I was surprised, and I give John Kalogner credit for signing Jackal to Geppen, because that had to be around 93. That was like one of the latter yeah. bands. Mm. And they weren't your typical hair metal band. They no. were more of a southern rock, you know, like Black Oak, Arkansas meets ACDC meets, you know, some L.A. band or something. But yeah, they, they were, definitely they, had. No, no, they, they weren't like a new, like you said, they weren't a new type of sound. I think what it probably, just in my opinion, I think a lot of it, obviously, the change a lot of it was just a saturation here in the United States with, with the glam rock thing. I mean, it was everywhere. Everywhere you turned in the 80s up until about 89, 90, that's all you saw and heard. Yeah. And then I, th- I think it was just whether it was a generational kind of thing where it was just like, man, we're not feeling this or this is just so like, I mean, people were just tired of seeing, I guess, guys dressing like that and the sounds just talking about chicks and just the same old stuff. And here came this complete opposite type of thing where it was more of a self-loathing Sort of, yeah, whatever, you know, it just, it just was a very, Bob, you said it was like a gradual thing, and it did slowly happen within like a five-year period, but it, in terms of MTV and popularity, it was like an overnight, like, switch. Yeah. And, and yeah. these bands literally, like, and they always talk about it, a lot of those hair metal bands, you know, that, uh, I'm, like I said, I don't like to say necessarily hair metal myself. I did like, I loved a lot of those bands, but um, they even tell you, like, yeah, all of a sudden it was just like, boom, overnight. People stopped going to shows. They stopped buying the records. Yeah. And MTV slowly just started. Obviously, once Nirvana hit, that was the major thing. And then it was just... That was it, yeah. That's it. It was just snowball from there. Yeah. And Because I, I remember yeah. looking at or reading an interview with Janie Lane, and he said, you know, weren't obviously... And they were like late 80s, so they, they didn't... They weren't they weren't the rap yeah. the crew time. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, late 80s mm-hmm. to early 90s. And and he was like sitting in the uh, the offices. I can't remember the record label it was signed to, but Columbia, he was yeah, the, yeah, Columbia. And like there was pictures of them all over the place. And then they went in a couple of months later, and there was pictures of Mudhoney and Nirvana. And they were and they were listening. Who the fuck are these guys? You know, <laughs> yeah, so he just Allison changed. I think. 
Yeah. yeah, and he just he gave Giannis some change. So he knew that okay, there's something wrong here. This is not right. You know what I mean? So. It was really the labels that were at fault, and that were the total hypocrites about that. Because I lived in L.A., I worked at the record industry in L.A., I, I managed bands and so forth. The labels were the ones that were forcing these bands to write the Palmer ballads. They were the ones telling the bands you got to use this producer you got to use this video director you know the same video director that you have to have this pretty girl in there you have to do that it was a label and i knew a lot of bands that were against that at the time no we don't want well then you're not on the label or it's either this way or the highway and then when grunge hit all the labels were like oh the grunge music was so refreshing they're the real deal they do what they want to do and i'm thinking you motherfuckers yeah you are the ones <laughs> telling these bands what to do and now they're totally d- denying that saying you know these bands are the real deal and all the hair bands you know the power ballads all that you know that's over with it's like and even the british bands you look at saxon raven Diamond Head, all those new wave of British heavy metal bands that were getting deals. I mean, even uh, some of the thrash bands, look at uh, Celtic Frost. They went through their hair hair metal phase, you know? I mean, so it it was forced upon them by the label, by the American labels. Even even Testament did a ballad. Come on. Sure. I was just going to say, even even the thrash bands... Right well, when they yeah. did mean, that, everyone was doing it. Everyone did it, right? You said you said testament. I mean I mean you go through all those older thrash bands, they all slow down their sound and try to, I guess, you know, quote unquote try to grunge it themselves. Obviously yep. a lot of it for I mean Exodus, Testament, all of them did it. I mean it was just yeah. Well I don't think mm-hmm. Exodus ever did. No, they did. Yeah, the, they, well they, they didn't necessarily did slow it. That much stuff, but if you look at, uh, I forget the they name of the album, but uh, yeah. they, they even said that, that one album, they said that was more influenced by the label. Like that was something they were kind of like, not so much forced yeah, to do, force, force but, they, habit, but, but yeah. they, yeah, forced habit. That's it. Yes, that album. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But they always used to have those t shirts, four albums out and still no ballad, I remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but to think about the ballads, I mean, you know, obviously Metallica Testament. Those those were darker ballads than you know the you know Flight of the Angels by Slaughter or you yeah, know This right, Is yeah. Love by White Snake. It wasn't those syrupy sappy ballads, but still, yeah, you're right. Where everyone was doing it was a cookie cutter thing, mm-hmm. and then you had these bands like Danger Danger and Trickster and yeah. Firehouse, and it's like doing the same old fucking shit. It's well, like come on. Yeah. But then again, you can you can say the same <laughs> thing for grunge, right? Because then grunge oh, came yeah. along. Guy, you the movie Singles came out. It became Hollywood, and then you had yeah. that other second wave with. You know, the candle boxes Bush. and that stuff trying yeah. to become yeah. that. Papa so, Roach yeah. and shit like that. Yeah. 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 Well, even the British bands like Bush and all these others were kind of exactly. doing that. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Here, Bob, I bring up something about the, the image thing with the grunge. There's a couple of bands that stand out for me in the 90s. And they just, when you look at the, the like the, the inlay cards to the CDs, it's like, okay, we got to grunge up and freak of nature. Remember Mike Tramp's band? Yeah, I do. And uh, Jerry, my buddy, Jerry Best was in bass. Yeah. So if you look at at videos of them, they were completely the flannels, completely. And then you look at Firehouse, the third record, I think, that they did. They cut their hair and they wore the flannel shirts. And and Euthanasia by Megadeth was another one. If you look at the inlay CD. Motley Crue, too. Motley Crue. Motley Crue did it. Like oh, yeah. Kiss did it. Kiss did it. But, but remember, who start, remember who started the flannels before grunge was Trickster. 
Trickster, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. That yeah, video, yeah, video. That the flannels. Give it to me. Yeah, it just became this trend with the flannels and the Doc Martens, which was funny. As I remember seeing Soundgarden when they first played, you know, when they did the Foundations form, they played at uh, the old Cat House. Uh, it was uh, called a different club on on different nights, and uh, they played, and maybe fifty people were in the audience. And I remember seeing a few of these hair metal. Uh, bands that were in the audience just go this shit is horrible this sucks and then of course six months later they're dressing just like that trying to <laughs> yeah. just like that yeah, and it's, you know, that's that. what it became yeah so, so bob the other the other thing i, I want to bring up is all that commercial stuff that was really successful in the u.s in the late 80s and early 90s before grunge that was underground where we were from because that did not get played on the radio at all really so mm, I right. think that's why we that's why we stuck with all these bands. Mm. We weren't as fickle. Well, it's funny with me. All the uh, all my pen pals in Europe in the early '80s. I never liked the hair metal stuff. I mean, I I did like uh, you know the first Motley Crue record, "Peace Your Action" and "Live Wire." Like a couple songs off that, but all the I mean, I was into the I was into the new wave of British heavy metal, all the '70s metal, and all the newer you know Riot, Fire Down Under, Anvil, and the LA bands I was into was Armored Saint. Uh, you know, Warrior, Malice, man, I was working with uh, Eden that were August Red Moon mm-hmm. before that, but uh, bands that were a little bit heavier. I was going to say, all my pen pals in Europe that I were writing to, they all wanted the L.A. bands, the uh, Glamier bands, and, and unknown bands like Snow and stuff like that that released vinyl, a 10-inch, you know, independent record on their own and some of these others, but they all wanted stuff from the L.A. bands that they couldn't get, and of course, I wanted all the new wave of British heavy metal bands, but that kind of got me into more of the L.A. scene was the fact that these guys who I admired from from uh, England, who were all, you know, became writers and journalists for a lot of the major rock and metal magazines in England and Germany and Holland, they were all after the L.A. glamier bands. You know, Rat, you know, the first Quiet Riot single, Slick Black Cadillac with Randy Rhodes and, you know, all this other stuff. Well, as well, a lot, of, a lot of the tours, a lot of the package tours, like even today in the United States are pretty much the same genre so you're you're basically going to see five or six bands of more or less the same type of music in europe then and even today you're going to get a thrash band mm. with, you know with, with a you know a hair band with mm-hmm. a grunge band a new you know new metal band or whatever so it's much more eclectic so mm. you know europeans I, I think are a lot less fickle you know we just if something that's definitely. good is good it's not really it's not we, we don't follow trends like uh, no. my that's gone back to my earlier point i bought weren't on the same day that i bought pearl jam i didn't give a shit i didn't i didn't even cross my mind to not buy it because it's not cool anymore i guess mm-hmm. like, well i fucking like it so i'm going to buy it i don't care what you think but a lot of the like you, you know that, that explained your you explained it to me earlier that a lot of bands listening to what or a lot of people listen to the trends or Hey, what are you doing buying a warrant album? That's not cool anymore. And they went, okay, I won't buy a warrant album. Yeah. You mean the girl, the, the cashier didn't bullshit. ask you that? The girl behind the counter? What is no. this? <laughs> what? Oh, God, you're one of those 80s guys? I just said, just give me the warrant album. I got to go. So that, yeah. was, that's my, that, was my, that was our attitude, you know, uh, overall. If, you, if, if it's just two types of music, good and bad, you like it, you don't like it, period. Yeah. It's all rock and roll, right? I mean, it's all it's all rock and roll. I, you know, I, I agree. It's like, you know, here, it's, it's always, for some reason, right, Bob? I mean, it's just always been like that. It's like once something comes in and it's in and, you know, it, 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 you said once, like I said, a great example was, was with the hair metal and, and with the uh, grunge, you know, scene was just, 
if you said you liked Warren and Allison Chains, it's like you almost couldn't say that. You had to lie and be like, I mean, I'll be honest, yep. you're straight with myself. I remember buying Lynch Mob's, you know, Wicked Sensation, and I actually hid it from my brother. I, I did, he had no idea I bought it. I would hide it in like my little like uh, drawer and stuff. And then one day he found it. He's like, "Are you hiding it?" And he knew exactly what it was, is because I didn't want to be made fun of because they're making fun of me because I was listening to Warren and, and you know Lynch Mob and stuff. And and the rest of the guys on my block were just like, "Ah, oh, you pussy! Look at listening to that cheesy shit." You know, it's just like yeah, they were I, probably I listening it, to Cro Mags yeah. or Typo or something like that. So they were like the hardcore. Yeah, and what's funny, and, now, and these days they're listening to like you know the the cheesiest shit in the world. So that's just kind of funny. It's like <laughs> I don't catch that later on, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, can I can I ask you? ask you a question about when Rot left Van Halen and Hagar joined did you guys know anyone over here that said you cannot listen to Van Halen anymore because Hagar's in the band I didn't. did you get that at all I didn't get that I didn't I mean there were obviously people took sides yeah uh, a lot of people didn't like it I particularly didn't care for the Hagar Van Halen mm. uh, I didn't mind it but I, I, I didn't like it near as much as, and I liked Hagar before I loved him with Montrose and I liked some of his little stuff some Someone yeah. was kind of cheesy. One, two, three lockbox. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I just didn't think he worked with Van Halen. But it obviously sold here in America. So, you know, but you're going to get the diehards are always yeah. going to say that. And, you know, it's like the, uh, the Aussie Dio thing with Sabbath mm -hmm. or a lot of bands or, you know, John Bush or uh, Joey Belladonna with Anthrax, you yeah. know. Yeah, I think Hagar uh, had, he had enough credibility to be able to slide by that, where obviously a lot different when Gary Sharon was the singer. Yeah, the, no, nobody can admit that they liked that, nobody, and, and nobody really does like it anyway. But uh, yeah, it's. A, a, but I think with Hagar, it was, uh, you know, most I, obviously you know original Van Halen fans loved you know David Lee Roth, and I mean just from my you know just from you know me growing up and my friends who liked Van Halen, everyone. Most people did not like the the Hagar stuff, but he had enough credibility being with Montrose and having a you know, decent solo career himself that I think uh, it didn't really it wasn't looked upon like it would be if you liked a band like Wing or a Warrant, for sure. But mm. I think if you that's take like, if you take Van Halen with Gary Sharon, so they released Van Halen three, so that, that that's nothing to do with Gary Sharon. That album is just a piece of shit. So sure, yeah, you can't exactly. I agree. I agree. It's yeah. just a bad album. <laughs> I totally agree. I feel sorry for him because he gets a lot, and I feel sorry for Blaze Bailey too. Because, he's the fall guy. For, yes, yeah, like they're the, the fall guy. That's the problem with being a lead singer in a huge band. I mean, you can replace a drummer or a keyboard player or add another guitar player like Yannick Gears and make it a three piece, and you know people will. Talk about his stage presence, which is obvious, but uh, no. But what comes to the singer, you're going to get. They're either going to get. They're going to love it or they're going to hate it. That's mm -hmm. the hardest thing to replace. And not only that is when those bands joined. I mean, the thing about like someone like we talked about this in, in Bamber's brand with a a Dio or a, a even a John Bush or a Sammy Hager. They've got such presence and such personality, and they're not just singers. They're songwriters. You know, they're producers on their own. Mm -hmm. They they're control freaks in a way, you know. So when Dio joined Sabbath, the sound changed drastically. When Bush joined Anthrax, it changed drastically. And I think they were looking for that change. When John mm -hmm. Karabi joined Motley Crue, the song yeah. that changed yeah. drastically. Bob, all I got to do is bring up on Focus on Metal, even on the Facebook page. My favorite Motley Crue album is the Karabi album. And my yeah, God, people album. will go after me. You can't. Album. It's not Motley Crue. It, you know, it's well, so you know polarizing you, you, you that you record. Can, you it's could like, go back to seventy three, seventy four. It should even go back to um, Ian Gillen leaving, and then obviously yeah, covered it in news coming in and putting out burn. Yeah. And then you have yeah. 
you mm. have the Mac three versus mm. Mac or Mac two versus Mac three conversation that's still going on today. You know, in twenty twenty, for God's sake. I just, yeah. I, I think the two were, were, are incredible. You know, they changed the style, but and and the same thing with uh, Diano. You know, when uh, our mating came out, Killers yeah. came out on a huge trajectory. We're talking about that, Bob. You saw the Killers tour. They uh, were still a bit up. underground then at the time. They hadn't quite broken big to where it was going to be that much of a backlash. I mean, it was obviously to the underground fans, but it was obviously Dickinson took them over to the next level. So yeah, it wasn't, no. they were already a platinum selling band like a Van Halen, and then they get a new singer. So it was a, a little bit different there. And that's why I think Blaze Bailey got a lot, because most people got into Iron Maiden when Dickinson was in the band. Anyway, a lot of people, you know, us underground people were more into the, you know, when Diana was in, but, you know, seeing when Blaze Bailey came in, Iron Maiden were already selling millions of records and were already one of the biggest metal bands. And then you have Blaze. And the problem there, again, it was it was the albums. I mean, Steve and Harris wanted Blaze to sing like Bruce, and he wasn't that kind of a singer. No. You know, they still had those epical kind of songs, and, you know, that didn't really work for Blaze Bailey. No, there were and, a couple and, of good tracks on both of those albums. Um, but overall, like, I mean, they just don't stand up in the catalog of Maiden. I know Maiden have a couple of duds in there too, but overall, they do, they, for me, they just don't hold up. They, you know, they, they were terrible. The covers were awful. Like, I mean, they just lost, they lost their weight completely. And, you know, and I, I think I heard you talking about that, Bob, on a recent podcast where they were playing in clubs in the United States around that time that people were just yeah. done with Maiden. But I think it goes down to the fact it wasn't necessarily the change they just released bad albums, and that was um, mm. that's the main reason for me. And everything just kind of fell away because of that, because the music wasn't solid. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. When people talk, when people talk about Steve Harris, right? The great thing about Steve Harris is he's very stubborn. He always says he hates. Punk he's very he wasn't influenced by punk, but come on, you can hear punk all over those Absolutely. early Maiden albums. Right. I, I never yeah, buy yeah. that. Totally. Well, he's a big prog fan. He grew up on all the prog bands, so he was obviously hated punk. Uh, uh, back in the day, and but yeah, I, I think it's more of a hatred toward Paul Diano. He just doesn't like Paul, so he won't give Paul any credit. So when uh, that's right, yeah. yeah, they say that they're a punk. And you have punk influences? Nope. Like in the interview with Sam Dunn. Yeah. Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. 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 <laughs> but he, Matt, he, Matt, he must have been like you with the Wicked Sensation album, listening to the punk stuff in the background. Hey, but no just one denying could see it, it you know? but no, exactly. <laughs> Deep inside, he really loves it. Just can't admit it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you were bringing up, you were bringing up earlier on, Bob, about gigs that we went to since we moved here. Um, I know for a fact I went to seventeen concerts the first year I moved here. And I'm not ashamed to admit that a lot of them were late 80s hair metal bands that never bothered playing in Ireland. And I ticked them all off when I came here. And some of them I went to twice in the same weekend. It was Cinderella. There was Winger. She's there was other. I can't remember some of the other ones. But it was like it was literally a wish list I'd never seen that never bothered coming. And I just went right. Tick that off. Tick that off. Tick that off. Tick that off. And I know Tommy's the same way. I did the same. I mean, I was, you know, Matt, you get, you know, you know, some of the New York venues like, you know, the, uh, New Jersey, like the Wellmont and the Starland and the sure. Gramercy and um, mm -hmm. all of the, um, uh, the New York. So I always, you know, I was looking at these tour dates from Kerrang and later on online. And then you'd see where bands are playing. And I, all of a sudden I'm within an hour of these venues and I was going, fuck this. Hail, rain or snow. I didn't care what day of the week it was on. I didn't mm -hmm. care what time. The concert started. These were bands and Richie's exactly the same that, you know, again, a lot of them were, were 80s hair metal bands that never, ever came to Europe or came over for a quick tour of Germany or the UK and went back again. Mm -hmm. So we got we got our, it was like being 15 all over again and going to the UK to see these bands. We were like that when we came here. So 
you know, here I am now, 49, and still as eager and honest and loving the music as much as I did back in 1985. But we did the same thing that, you know, that's how bands make the money now. We know nobody buys you know, records, they go to, they go to gigs, they mm. buy the merch. And now those bands with this shit that's going on can't even make money from merch and gigs because we can't leave our houses. It's, no. it's, yeah. it's, yeah. it's unbelievable. Exactly. I mean, I fear, I fear for what's going to happen to a lot of these bands in terms of that these guys have genuinely got no livelihood right now. I mean, let's not go down the whole rabbit hole of coronavirus shit because there's enough of that going on. Sure. But, you know, from a, from a music perspective, I kind of worry for a lot of those rock and metal bands out there. So we should all be, you know, doing what you can and, buying the shit online um whether it's a cd or an itunes or something keep these guys going yeah no tom you make you know you make a great point too like you just said there was there was these bands that you guys you know we obviously maybe took it you know just took it for granted here seeing them because they tour here all the time you guys never you know never saw them back in the day you mm-hmm. here you see them i think right now it's sort of the almost the uh opposite and turn it's kind of turned basically like i'm i'm really excited these days because I'm, I'm once in a while I'll see this, these bands coming over from Europe that don't get to play here, but yet all the bands here, all the metal or hard rock bands here, I mean, if they're going to make it, they're going to Europe. I mean, bottom line. So it's it's sort of like yep. an opposite these days where, you know, the United States is, is not the place necessary to come and, and go to the kind of, I guess, uh, you know, get your sound out there. It's not, people don't buy, especially hard rock and metal, they don't buy music here anymore. No. I mean, but now way- it's relentless touring, but yeah. it's relentless touring. Absolutely. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, Richie, we spoke about that. You know, Megadeth, they come, you're going to go, nah, I'll see them in six months' time, they'll be back. So it's relentless mm-hmm. touring. So now it's coming to the point where you don't even, well, like I'm not as eager as I was to see a band, or if I don't miss them, or if I miss them, I'm not going to be that disappointed because I know they're coming back around again because mm-hmm. that's how they're making their money. So there is a sense of over-touring. Um, and like guys like me, you know, I might have went to see Rat, Stripe, or whoever, the first, well, fake Rat, um, the first year um, I was here. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really going again because uh, I saw him twice already. I don't need to see him again. doesn't mean I don't like the bands any less. I'm just not prepared to spend another 50 bucks on a Wednesday night. I'm just because I saw him six months ago. And that's a big danger. Like, they need the money, but now they're caught in this kind of rock and a hard place where they're sure. over touring and their attendances are probably going to start falling um because well, you know we've seen them mm-hmm. uh, yeah I want, I want to bring up a point there about some of the traditional metal bands um that are from the u.s and i said to a lot of them it's a uh, you're really living in the wrong con- wrong continent you're bringing out this great music and you know damn well that in order to tour, you're going to have to go to Europe to do it. And they've all basically agreed with me. And uh, like mm. another band would be like that aren't like traditional metal, it'd be like Black Star Riders um, or the, the, the Daisies. Like they've got a, a much bigger following in Europe and mm-hmm. they all live yeah. in the US. And God knows what's going to happen to them now. Mm-hmm. It's Things because, are going to change for you know, sure. But the whole landscape is going to change uh, in the music business uh, in the entertainment business in general, in any business really in general. This year, I think 2020 has been so far, I'm only a couple of months in just for new releases. Like, and I was just looking at my iPod today, seeing what have I, you know, what have I bought or picked up? And I'm looking at like Testament, their new album is just holy shit boss. It's off the chart. It's just, Oh my God. Mm -hmm. It's just phenomenal. Pearl Jam just came out. Silverthorn, the new Biff Byford album. I know, Rob, you said you're not a huge fan because it's too Saxonish, but I gotta say I like it. Black Swan. Black uh, Swan's good. Irishman, Very good. Everyone's album. talking Brilliant. about Black Brilliant. Swan. Brilliant. Oh, that's excellent, man. Great. Yeah. The new Annihilator album is just unbelievable. Jeff Waters is on yes. fire. Yep. Black Swan is who's in that band? Robert okay. Paul, Red Beach. Jeff Pilson. Yeah, Jeff Pilson. Yeah. And then Annihilator, and then Dirty okay. Charlie, which is the 
fifteen thousand Lynch project, but um, his <laughs> this week, with the, the, yeah. <laughs> but this, I think that's an awesome album. The, the singer from um, Animal Drive, uh, the Croatian band. I can't remember his name, but that's unbelievable. And he, and Sons of Apollo. I mean, the list is endless. I mean, yeah. I think the music. So far, we're only three months in, obviously coming into April. The music releases this year has been absolutely phenomenal. I agree. Stellar year for new music. Absolutely. Ross the Boss, that's another great new uh, release. Yeah, I heard that a few tracks. That's right. a really yeah, good That's really good. Awesome. Yeah, that surprised yeah. me. Yeah. I just did an interview mm-hmm. with him. Yeah, great mm-hmm. album. Yeah, that surprised me. Yeah. Here, Bob, can I just ask you a question off the record? Are you getting more interviews now in the last couple of weeks, offers, because they're around to do more interviews? Because... I did one on Tuesday and three on Wednesday. But you know, with me, I, I'm as you probably know, getting more and more away from doing the interviews. We'll do it just for the hard radio podcast. You know, we just put that new one up with, uh, you know, Ross the Boss and uh, uh, the, what's his name from Badlands, uh, uh, Greg Jason. Uh, Jason. Greg Jason. That's a yeah, good yeah. album too. That's a really, that's a really good album. Yeah, yeah it's a good album. Check. Yeah. But Bob, you got to take credit for a lot of these guys that you know you're you're called the Podfather for a reason. I'm not blowing smoke up your ass, but. You know, there's a lot of the, mm-hmm. the a lot of the the guys listening to it. I mean, Richie and I used to listen to you back in Ireland. Did you know you had a little fan club wow. over there? So, nice. you know, you gotta you gotta tip the old hat to to Bob here that a lot Absolutely. of these guys are even doing it because you did it many many years ago, and your content today is still phenomenal. And even like tonight, obviously, is um, going to be your best podcast ever. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but Bob, as as much as I love the documentaries you do. It fucking pissed me off that you did those and you didn't do the podcast for years. I was like, fucking hell, Bob, come on. <laughs> well, that's why Matt got me back at it. I mean, you got to give credit to uh, my partner here, Matt, because if it wasn't for his him. Arm a little bit. <laughs> you know, it really was. It was Matt that said, hey, man, yeah. I mean, I always thought about it, but it's like, ah, you know, I don't want to be posting it. I don't want to, you know, do the production and do all that stuff. And Matt came in and. Offered to do it. And he, he was around since the old podcast days, since the old school sessions. Bob, you know you can't say no to an East Coast guy. Like, it's just relentless. Eventually, right. said, okay, <laughs> done, we're done. Okay. Especially, right. especially with some Irish ancestry, you know. You, you have there you to, go. You know yeah, I mean? it doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, you're right. I mean, Bob, I mean, obviously, that's why. I mean, I love the podcast. It all started with, yeah, with Skull Sessions. Well, that's how I met Bob, obviously, was through the uh, was through the podcast back when he started it up. And, uh yeah, but we we started talking. I'm like, dude, I mean, you gotta, you know, you gotta do because it, it, it's just like a void that was missing. I'm like, dude, I love, I just love listening yeah. to like a lot of the, you know, A uh, and R guys, a lot of authors, and just a lot of different people, and just these roundtable discussions was phenomenal. And you know, he, de- you know, Bob definitely uh, started this whole, you know, uh, roundtable thing with the podcast, which was a little different than some of the other ones. And uh, yeah, he's definitely the podfather. I agree. No doubt. That's it. And even the throwback ones, Bob, like I was listening to the um, the Maiden one. That's like 2010. You posted last week or whatever. Um, and I recall hearing that in 2010. But again, some of the content I'd forgotten about. So that's a good, interesting. You had Malcolm Dome and whoever else was on it. I can't remember. Ryan um, Slego, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So the, I lo- the throwback ones are phenomenal because that, like the rainbow one you had. Bobby. The one, I always wanted to see Richie Blackmore. And I went to see Blackmore's oh, night about a year ago. And I stayed for five songs. And they played um, Soldier of Fortune, uh, which was fine. So at least I saw one Deep Purple song by Richie Blackmore. And I just had to get out of there because it was just so shit that you're looking at him <laughs> dancing around with this stupid hat. He had these, <laughs> these turned up clogs. And uh, yeah, the, the bass player had this kind of square bass made out of wood. And he was jumping around with these kind of um, later hosing type things on. I said, oh, fuck this. I can't take it. But I got to see Richie Blackmore play Soldier of Fortune. So I'll die happy. I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. So. 
you know, but uh, Candace singing or who yeah, sang? Yeah, Candace, yeah, yeah. Candace I bet you, uh, Jim Bartak had a heart on during that whole time. Nostradamus, <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know who he yeah, is, yeah. Well, look oh, well, well, I know, well, I know Jackal on the CMS has a heart on every yeah. single week because he does not photographs it with you. Same guy. He goes under three names: Jackal, oh, Nostradamus, oh or something. But his real name is Jim Bartak. You know, he, he loves when I talk about him on these podcasts. Here, Bob. Before we before we wrap this up, I have to ask you. Um, and you're on the subject of like Blackmore and Rainbow and all that. What's your take on Vandenberg coming back with uh, Ronnie Romero as a singer? I didn't even know that. Wow. Next is he already out of Rainbow or was that or is the Rainbow stint over with? Well, I, I don't think Blackmore is doing any more dates in the near future. Vandenberg has him in the band and they've got a new record coming out in May and they've it's re-released. Not good, I heard, heard a couple of they, tracks. They re-recorded Burning Heart. Oh, oh yes, another I, song I, did, the other day. I did hear that. I thought the original was uh, much better. I love oh, that yeah. original singer of, uh, what was the name, Bart, uh, the original singer of Vandenberg. That first album was a great album. Well, the CMS uh, did a great piece on that. They they, they had a well, great segment. They played the original. I heard uh, that. Yeah, I heard part of and there's no comparison. The original, even though, it, I don't know the exact year, like 83 or something, I don't know. You know, even with the production being as bad as it was back then, it's still better than the new version of Vanderbilt. Way Park. better. Is that Romero singing on, on that yeah. song? On the, oh, yeah, okay. he doesn't suit the music. No, he's, he not, he's not a good singer. He doesn't suit yeah. the music. Is, Richie, is the Moon Kings, is that not a thing then? I don't know, but I, I thought they were brilliant. And the singer he had in that band was yeah. phenomenal. Yeah, I'd say he's yeah, a straight cat that Adrian Vandenberg. He got really into artwork, into painting. And he mm. kind of said, oh, I'm done with music. And, and this is my new career and he put a lot into it he had a publicist behind him and and then obviously now he's back doing music so but i always thought it was great i mean with vandenberg and the stuff he did with white snake even though he didn't play on did he play on any of the albums i don't think so just some restless heart in 97 yeah um, he just heard but he never went back and did anything else with covered it which you always thought he would because they were always buddies and you know and Coverdale obviously always goes after the star player but he never went back at any stage to white snake which yeah, i always just, found a little bit odd you know i love this playing very tasty very michael schenker ish for sure so shall we end this thing here matt are you falling asleep on us no i don't know man i'm just <laughs> <laughs> I'm I heard some in. snoring in the background. <laughs> he's trying to, he's, Richie, he's trying to understand the accent. That's what it is. Oh, I'm yeah. used to the accent, Dory. I'm, I'm trying to figure, you're used to that. I'm trying, yeah, to figure, yeah. I'm trying to figure out how you're going to join the dots in this to make it sound coherent. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, well, we'll do our best. <laughs> we'll do our best editing skills, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right, uh, gentlemen. I know, uh, Richie, you got focus on metal podcasts. You want to throw up some... Yeah. Uh, so, focusonmetal.net uh, we're doing an episode a week uh, and the week we're recording this we actually did an, an extra episode for all the people who are stuck at home uh, we've, we've got some interviews that we never aired so in the next couple of weeks we're going to try and uh, maybe do two episodes a week nice. um, if we can I think we, today we there was an interview I did with Eric Martin last year all about the debut Mr. Big record that's like 70 minutes long so that's the extra episode. And I did four interviews this week. So, you know, we're, there's no shortage of audio. And we do 48 episodes a, a year, I think, at this stage. Yeah, that's more than you, Bob, right? Uh, well, <laughs> dude, with my Shockwaves Hard Radio podcast, we were doing that since the late, when did we start that? I don't even remember, early 2000s. And I think I've only got 98 episodes. <laughs> so... In ni- 90 episodes in 20 years or whatever it's been. Uh, you're okay. Uh, it's good. Uh, the Skull Sessions is already catching up to that. Uh, Tom, <laughs> what, what what about you, man? I mean, uh, 
A lot of people don't know who the hell you are. Why did I get this whiskey swilling Irishman on this podcast? <laughs> yeah, let, let me give you the backstory on that one. So obviously, Bob and I have been speaking a bit, you know, about music and whatever. And then I, I'm just, I'll give you a brief background. I'm the spokesperson for Waterford Crystal here in North America. So I do all the PR stuff and like the Times Square Ball is Waterford. I do all of the media for that, whatever. And I was in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago and I just posted on, on Facebook saying, hey, I'm in San Francisco, whatever, doing an event in Bloomingdale's, come on by and say hello, whatever, because, you know, you do speeches and shit. And then, Bob, you then sent me a message going, hey, we should grab a beer or whatever. And then I called you that afternoon. And you had no idea I was an Irish guy. You just thought that I was a friend of Richie from the podcast Correct. or whatever. So, we, you, so you didn't know that. Then Bob came down for the free booze. Then when we had the event in Bloomingdale's that night, <laughs> free booze uh, there. Smart yeah, man, Bob. Smart and man. let me tell you, it was uh, like a hundred dollar bottle whiskey. It was, oh, it was not yeah, cheap. It was. Uh, some of them yeah, was three hundred dollar bottle whiskey. Bob, I don't do cheap shit. Come on, I like that. Yeah. Uh, so you had to find water for <laughs> come on, it's glasses. Not a Kmart. And Bloomingdale's, and and we had the whiskey, and then we went. For, we met Dom, who's the ambassador for Redbreast. And then we just caught up. I think we went to the Cheesecake Factory and we just had a couple of beers and a bite to eat. And then you had mentioned in passing, hey, you know, you should do a podcast sometime. And I went, fuck, that would be awesome. And then if you can remember, Bob, we were walking back to the parking lot and I couldn't find my car. So yes. um, Bob just said, fuck you and drove off and left me there. So I said, OK, I got to deal with this on my own. And, uh, and then we um, I you're on your own. Irish <laughs> See you, buddy. Um, and then I spoke to Richie the next day and then, like I said, we're supposed to do it a few weeks ago, but you know, because of the shit going on, the lynch mob gig was canceled. So we arranged for tonight and it's been, um, you know, a great couple of hours. I really enjoyed it. And it's uh, great to meet you, Matt, an honor to talk to you, Bob and Richie. I speak to you every day. So yeah. <laughs> we're good. Likewise, yeah, fuck you, Tommy. I know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> you know where I live. Come on. I do. <laughs> All right, definitely check out the Focus on Metal podcast again. One of my one of my favorite podcasts. I love those uh, episodes you did when you interview all the Kerrang uh, authors, and I even love more the uh, producer episodes. Uh, yeah. In fact, uh, speaking of producers, I just put up an episode of the Skull Sessions today with uh, Greg Renoff, who did the uh, Van Halen Rising book. He just did a mm -hmm. new book on Ted Templeman. And right. he actually awesome. he co-authored with uh, Ted Templeman. So I had him and Jimmy Dianza from Bullet Boys, Bullet you know, Boys, obviously yeah. who uh, were produced by three of their albums were produced by Templeman. So uh, uh, that's good. It's, it's kind of a producer podcast, although we don't have Ted on it. We uh, talk all about him. So I'm about thirty minutes it's into that one, Bob. I picked it up today, so it's uh, so far so good. So really good content as it's, always. It's interesting to bring up producers like. We've interviewed a lot of producers. Keith Olson was one of them, and he passed you know, he away, passed away yeah. a couple of weeks ago. So, yeah. you know, once you get the producers on now, get the stories out of them now because all these guys are getting up there. You know, yeah. absolutely. Sure. And what I always say is the producers always have the best stories because they were never as fucked up as the bands were in the studio. <laughs> True, and they had their shit True. together, and and they'll tell you the real deal. Yeah, they're not biased. Yeah. They'll tell you exactly. Straight, yeah. yeah, straight shooters. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Yeah, well, great meeting and you guys, got... man. Both Tom and uh, and yeah. Richie, man. Likewise, and, uh, Matt. Yeah, very nice talking to you guys. Really appreciate you guys coming on. Yeah, no All problem. All right, guys. Take care, gentlemen. All right, Bob. Talk soon. I'll talk, care, to you. Take care, guys. talk to you. Thanks, All guys. Right. Okay. Bye bye. See bye. You guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast. Subscribe and listen to all episodes by going to our pages on iTunes, Spreaker, YouTube, Spotify, and more. You can listen to all other episodes and access up-to-date information and news on the Shockwave Skull Sessions podcast 
by going to our website at www.shockwaveskullsessions.com. Email all comments, questions, and suggestions to shockwaveskullsessions at gmail.com. We begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way. So pick up your McCafe iced coffees, close your eyes, and deep sip in. And deep satisfaction out. <sighs> Take a treat retreat at McDonald's. Right now, get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price of participation may vary. Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. There's no better feeling than grilling out. And there's no better place than Ace to get the best grill for you and your family. We have the hottest grills from top brands like Big Green Egg, Traeger, and Weber. And since our stores are locally owned and we're committed to helping our neighbors, we'll also assemble and deliver your grill for free. Around the block, what you need in stock with people who know their grills. Offer valid for Ace Rewards members through September 7th on grills and accessories $3.99 and up. See participating stores for scheduling or exclusions.